Bruce, welcome to Simmer and Gabby. Rob Simpson, Bruce Boudreaux. It is uh, VancouverHockeyInsider.com. And how the heck are you? I'm doing good. Weather's a little uh, iffy right now, but other than that, uh, a lot of hockey on these days and today football too. So it's a good day for me. Heck yeah. Let's talk about number 12s before we get started. Our favorite number 12s or our choice of a number 12 for today. Who would that be for you? Well, I mean, you wanted to talk a little bit about the Minnesota Wild. So uh, with me, the one player I had that was number 12, that uh, was one of the best players of this generation was Eric Stahl. And um, I had him uh, for three years. You know, I mean, he had one, I think maybe two bad years in the at the end of his career and, Carolina then he got traded to New York and I don't think he was happy being a third line guy or a left winger and we put him back into his natural spot as the first line center and you know I think he got 21 his first year 42 his second year and over 20 his third year so his career definitely wasn't over and uh, uh, you know he was a really good player for me could do an awful lot of things and I think it really hurt us when we lost him in the first game of the the playoffs, both to St. Louis and in Winnipeg. And obviously a phenomenal player that helped win a Stanley Cup with the Carolina Hurricanes way back yeah. in 2006. He was incredible. Yeah, no, no. He, he had everything. He was, I think, the second pick overall. I had the non-luxury of my first one year in the American League when there was a lockout. He played for Lowell, and he was just a beast at 18 and uh, you just knew this guy was going to be a star. And uh, he was. And he's had a great career. Uh, very, very close to being Hall of Famish. I don't know if it's quite Hall of Famish because he didn't win any awards. But he did play on the Team Canada, win a Stanley Cup. He did get 100 points. He, he uh, played over 1,000 games. I don't know if he got 1,000 points, but I would guess he did. And, uh, you know. So it's close, but a very good hockey player and a good person. Speaking of number 12s who are Hall of Famers, here's a 10-second clip from Patrick Marlowe. I talked to him at the Hall of Fame festivities a couple weeks ago, and uh, I would think, and I'll ask you this after you watch this, that um, he is a lock, considering he passed Mr. Hockey for most games played of all time, 500-plus goals, yada, yada, yada. Hold on a second. Here's Patrick Marlowe after playing in the Legends game. Just two more. One, um, you're here playing in the Legends game for the Hall of Fame weekend. Dude, I don't need to tell you. You're pretty much a lock next year. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Is that something you try not to think about? or? Yeah, if I mean, you try not to think about it, but uh, a lot of people bring it up to me, so I, I, I hope uh, if it happens, it'll be great. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's okay. <laughs> start practicing your speed. All right, there, there he is, Gabby Patrick Marlowe. What do you think? Well, I think anytime you're the player that you played the most games in the history of the National Hockey League, yeah. that's that's something that gets you in automatically, let alone getting 500 goals, let alone playing 22 or 23 plus years, uh, being on great teams. And again, another one that was played for Team Canada, uh, international competition. I would tend to think that he was a lock just with those numbers. Yeah. First year, uh, like Ryan Miller, who showed up at the Legends game, who's been waiting already, um, 
some of these guys show up and play in that legends game during hall of fame weekend kind of, you know, it's like, let their presence be known. And as you just mentioned, I don't know if Marlowe really needed to do that, but it was a pleasure to chat with them. You know, every time you bring up one of these numbers, I mean, you can go down a list and there's some amazing, especially the low numbers, amazing players that played at the, these positions that we could have chosen. I mean, um, Jerome McGinley was number 12, uh, uh, Yvonne Cornwaye was number 12. These guys are great. I think Cornwaye is in the hall, but I mean, uh, um, and again, is in the hall. I'm pretty sure. Or if not, he's going to yep. be a first chance he gets. I uh, so. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, there's many great number 12s. I, I tend to think of the guys that I have, I have a little bit of association with. And, uh, uh, Eric Stahl was just one of those guys. Well, when you mentioned Stahl, I brought up uh, having had the conversation with Marlowe, but my initial number 12, you know, this is going way back, Sid Abel. And well, yeah, he was one of the best, uh, you know, with the Detroit Red Wings. And in the early 50s, when they won all the, they won three cups in a row, and uh, Sid Abel was the cornerstone between, you know, with Howe and uh, I don't know if uh, Lindsay. it was Ted Lindsay. Lindsay or Les Wick or one of those guys Production on the line. left side, yeah. yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. And then went on to become uh, GM of the Kansas City Scouts. And he was actually, before that, he was the last ever full-time player head coach in the National Hockey League with Chicago wow. Blackhawks. And then... But it, and wasn't his line, like anytime you get a, a line named after you, I think that wasn't that the production line back yeah. then? So, yeah. I mean, uh, you know you're in pretty good uh, company when you're in that line. Yep, with uh, Abel Howe and Lindsay. Uh, and and the, I think the first or second interview I ever did on the radio at a high school radio station in Michigan, Sid came in. It was Ed Jockman. And then a few weeks later, it was Sid. And he came in. He smoked up until he walked through the door, sat down, did a 15-minute interview, and then smoked. <laughs> started smoking again. Back um, in the it, day, that's what they did, you know. But but lived to 82. And at that point, he was a you know, really well-known popular broadcaster doing Red Wings games on the radio and television, but Sid was uh, quite a guy. All right, uh, let's jump into, you mentioned you brought up the Wild and uh, your time there, and I just want to get into this season for them. It's been a wacky one. And Dean Evison, who I think took over directly from you, correct? Yep. Yeah. They show him the door. Uh, after a season that didn't, you know, Jared Spurgeon's played a grand total of eight games for him this season. They go through a losing skid and an, um, a, an emotional departure for him and GM Bill Guerin. What would you think? Well, the emotional departure, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that, to me, that's just a well-written story. Um, but um, the, uh, uh you know, like, I mean, the difference you can tell, I mean, when, when you are known or not, or not known where it's known that you you know, are on thin ice or that there's the potential of getting fired. And I mean, in, in the Minnesota locker room, everybody's walking around like with their head down, no one's happy. No one's, you know, they know that there's the stress on the coach, whether you like them or not. And uh, so everything is negative around a team, any team, Minnesota, whatever. And uh, for the most part, I, I think the Vancouver situation was a little different. But and then when you change coaches, everybody's got a fresh start. So everybody's in a better mood automatically. And that's why you see a, 
almost every time there's a new coach that there's a bump. There's a bump. There's a, a positive disc. There's a jump in your step. There's all of these things um, uh, that go on. And I mean, I think Minnesota's getting that now. Do I think uh, they got a better coach? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if Hines is a better coach than Dean or and and Bob. I don't think they've changed much in the in the the look on the the penalty killing, except they're being a little bit more aggressive. But I mean, it's that jump in attitude that gets gets teams off the little slide that they're on or the big slide that they're on and the negativism that uh, it comes with it uh, from every, uh, whether it's a broadcast, whether it's a, um, it's a blog, whatever, there's always negative stuff associated with it. So now everything is, is associated with it as positivity. I mean, they're beating Chicago three, nothing again today. So they're well on their way to their third victory in a row. Yeah, and they're winning in the division, which is important. They beat St. Louis. They beat Nashville. I think you were pretty ticked off, pissed off when you first heard this, though, right? Heard what? The Dean got it, fired? Yeah. Well, I was ticked off when you're saying all of a sudden you can't coach anymore. Like, I mean, the, the coaches don't change. Sometimes, uh, um, you know, I mean, the, the reason you get fired a lot of times is what I've just mentioned. But, I mean, I don't think he – changed the system is a lot of it is the same players the goaltending wasn't as good as the previous year the defending wasn't as good the previous year and their star players weren't playing as good as the previous year now is there a reason for that i don't know i mean not in this case i have no idea i'm not really uh too in tune with the the minnesota wild on a day-to-day basis but i mean uh they definitely you know, when your goalie the year before is at a 935 save percentage and this year you're at an 870, that's quite a difference in <laughs> in opportunities. I mean, uh, so, I mean, it's a uh, uh, goaltenders can make coaches look great or make them look not so great. Uh, in this case, I just uh, I, I was ticked only because I thought that they were trying to pin all this on the coach. And uh, uh, a lot of it has to be with the players. But at the same time, you can't fire. We all knew what we signed up for when we did this, and you can't fire 23 players. So, I mean, somebody's got to go because owners don't like sitting there and watching uh, people badmouth their teams, and they don't like uh, seeing empty seats. So, I mean, they had to make a they had to make a move at this point, and so far it's been successful. You were there. You were in Washington. You were in Anaheim. Anaheim, pretty quiet. And then, of course, you went to Vancouver and you got the real taste of the Canadian market. Where where would you sl- slide Minnesota in there? The state of hockey, obviously, it's part of the culture. Um, you know, it's a pretty progressive area, state and all that. But in terms of hockey, it's it's ingrained. So where did you kind of find that pressure level compared to maybe the others? Well, I mean, there's I didn't find any too much pressure because I was surprised when I got let go. <laughs> right. And I didn't see any reason. So I wasn't I, now if this had happened at game eight of the start of the season with a new GM, because it was the third GM in my tenure there, then I would have been surprised. But I wouldn't have been surprised because I felt pressure in game eight. But we were on an eight, three and one run. We were on like, I mean, we were a top 10 team from the eighth game of the season. So it was a little I was a little surprised and uh, that it happened in late February, in matter of fact, Valentine's Day in February. So, I mean, usually if you're going to get fired, it's going to be around Thanksgiving or early, early December. Um, and, it, you know, at the latest January, but sometimes in February when the team's going good, 
I was a little surprised by that, but I mean, that's, uh, that was the only time. I mean, I wasn't surprised in Vancouver. I knew it was going to happen if we didn't win the cup in, um, in Anaheim. And, uh, and I knew the year, I knew the summer before that, uh, in, in Washington, if we didn't, uh, if we didn't have an incredibly good season, like we'd had the previous four that, I mean, and or the same thing wasn't going to win the cup, then something bad was going to happen. The second part of that, though, for me in Minnesota, when I say pressure is in the market. Now, you mentioned Mike Russo at one point being a great writer. When we were chatting a couple of weeks ago. But like how how constant is it? In other words, how much of it is people were good. You know, people are so nice in Minnesota. Like, I mean, that's it's why they call it Minnesota nice. But I mean, uh, quite honestly, I didn't hear a lot of the, there was no buzz in the papers about uh, me leaving or me getting uh, fired. There was no there was no talk like on, well, if they lose this game, he's done um, because we weren't losing. We were like doing pretty well. And I mean, we had just finished winning in Dallas on a good team. We we lost in a shootout to the Rangers the night before. And that was, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't have got fired if we had won the shootout. But I mean, um, we had lost to Florida in that run where they scored a goal in the last second on a double deflection that was an accident. So, like, I mean, it wasn't like there was anything negative to be looking at uh, when that happened. So, I mean, uh, I think that's a different scenario than when you're you're a playoff team every year and you're mired in 31st place. I mean, people are going to talk. And the only thing is, because Minnesota is situated where Minnesota is, it doesn't get any outside um media attention or as much outside media attention as say a new york or toronto vancouver or anywhere else i mean so it's a uh it's okay it's done let's uh let's move on type thing to the next person uh they have just four players you talked about goaltending we talked about injuries they only have four players with a dozen or more points so they're not getting a huge contribution depth wise right now how good is kaprasov for you like how I never had him. I never mean, had him, but when you've seen, you know him, what he, I, I'd, he was in the situ in the organization for three years, and everybody kept talking about Bruce. You're gonna ever love it when this guy gets here. He's great. <laughs> he's this. He's that. And he went well. I really will, but uh, it didn't happen. And but the one thing I've coached against him, and uh, I mean, he's he's got incredible edges. He's got uh, a great release, much like Kucherov's. He's got a nose for the net. I mean, uh, all of these guys, um, these Russians or these uh, superstars that come over, and they don't have to be Russian, but, I mean, um, they've got some incredibly skilled offensive talent. They're a little bit lacking in the North American game defensively, and it takes a couple years for them to get to understand that. But, I mean uh offensively Kaprasov was as good as there was but I, I mean he's one of those guys that's not big either he's only about 510 so uh uh when you first see him you're sort of taken aback but how good can this guy be but his quickness and his 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 agility and his just his uh all-around awareness on the ice when he's got the puck is pretty pretty incredible yeah, and you mentioned it did take him a little while to get here because he played Russian juniors and then uh, worked his way up to the KHL for a season. And I remember, and you were there too for 
at least once, probably a couple times at the Roger or Traverse City rookie tournament that Detroit hosted. Minnesota was always there. And I remember every single year, their broadcaster and their PR guy be like, we think Kaprasov's going to show up this year, but, but you got to see this guy. <laughs> and we're like, okay, great. Next year, same thing in September. Oh, this Kirill Kaprasov guy is unbelievable. Next, third year, we're like, okay, is this kid ever going to show up? And then he obviously showed up and became the. Well, I had the same situation in Washington. Like when we drafted uh, uh, Kuznetsov, I mean, the first thing George told me is he's not going to be able to come here for three years, which was the same situation as Kaprasov. So, I mean, uh, it's uh, it was a great pick by the Wild. I mean, Brent Flair was the AGM probably doing with Chuck, uh, doing those picks, but uh, they won't get credit for it. But uh, they made some really good picks for the Wild back then. Yeah, and he ended up winning, obviously, the Calder Trophy, and he's off to the races, and he's one of the four guys, obviously, with plenty of points. Actually, Zuccarello's the leading scorer for the Minnesota Wild at the moment. I want to stay out west and talk about your other former team, recent former team, Vancouver Canucks. They beat the Calgary Flames last night. They pick up uh, Zador off in a trade, and uh, they seem to be going for it, as I put it, in that regard, trying to bolster things a little bit. What do you think of... Uh, Moving Bavillier, clearing some cap space, bringing in another big defenseman for a team that already leads the league in hits. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think Zadorov is is a big is a big move for them because I mean, in reality, they picked him up for um, two draft choices, the third and fifth, I think, and which yeah. you know, I mean, are hit and misses at the best of times with those guys. So I mean, you get a big solid defenseman and i think anybody knows i mean and and vancouver's not stupid i mean that to win in this league you in the playoffs you need big defensemen and uh uh i think he fits the bill i think the shocking part was how they got him for so cheap uh but moving bovillier the day before was a, a real big stroke i mean of genius uh i mean probably only were able to do this deal quite frankly if Corey perry hadn't have gotten to the into the problem that he got into because when he went when his contract was up that allowed Chicago four million dollars and Beauvillier hadn't really panned out in Vancouver I mean quite frankly he had two goals and both of them were in a 10-1 victory against San Jose so I mean to move him to move him and to move somebody up uh, whether it's from the minors or just give another guy a chance I don't think was a big a big stretch so it was a stroke of genius I thought for their management I mean it made their team better and it made their team bigger and made them made their team stronger so I mean that's a that was really positive did you hear anything about the Leafs were actually gunning for both Zadorov and Tanev somehow and I've heard that I mean and if, if you were Brad you living and you had both of them and you knew exactly what they were about you'd certainly if you believed that they were good players, you'd want them on your team. And I think that's, he wanted them. They just, uh, they didn't have that luxury, quite frankly, of being able to move a player. And I don't know if Calgary really wanted a player at that point that they, they didn't want, uh, you know, uh, they would have wanted, I mean, for Tanevin, uh, uh, Zadorov, they probably would have had to move $7 million or close $6 million at least. And I don't think they were either ready to uh, Calgary was ready to take on an extra six million 
or they or they wanted a six million. Like in Calgary's world, like I mean, everybody looks at it and say it wasn't a great deal, but that opened up their money. And I mean, maybe now they can go ahead and sign Hannafin. Maybe they can sign Lindholm, and and that's what that ability is going to uh, give them. And at the same time, if if uh, if Zadorov was going to walk after this season, then I mean. The, then they then they got the assets they wanted to. So I mean, we'll see how it all pans out. And the Leafs could still be in the Tanev uh, deal. I mean, the Leafs could be, yeah, of course. I think they, I, I definitely think they need a right-handed defenseman. Um, who that right-handed defenseman is, I don't know, but I know that when Calgary had Tanev in the lineup in the last couple of years, they were a better team than without him. Especially if you look now, I mean, last night Oscar Killington was. Uh, was was skating so i mean i'm thinking the other move that calgary made was okay we have to move this guy because uh skellington or killington I, Skellington, I yeah i don't understand it, that one you know he's on ltir and um when he comes off and he had a great year previous to last year and uh when he comes off they're gonna have to find the cap so they just moved the cap space and they got him so and they got some assets to begin with, and they got rid of a guy that didn't want to be there. So, I mean, I think it was a win in the end, win for everybody. Yeah, bring up a good point about Killington and the pronunciations because you uh, often in the distant past it was always Czech guys that, that, whose names were completely different than the way they were spelled. But the Killington to Shillington, he's Swedish, and I still haven't figured out how we get there. But and I keep forgetting to ask. <laughs> Uh, besides picking our favorite numbers early on in these podcasts, I also like to sometimes go down memory lane with you a little bit. And one thing that I've had written down for probably three weeks and I keep forgetting to get to, did you not play seven or nine games with the Chicago Blackhawks? Seven. Seven. And you had a goal. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? Obviously, you're a Leafs guy, true blue, organizational all the way through for the most part. And then here you are. What the hell went on there with? Seven? Well, I was pretty, pretty well aware of all the Hawks. Like, I mean, when I first started Dallas uh, in the Central League and and or Toronto and Chicago shared a farm club that I was on. So I got to know all the Blackhawks then. And then <clears throat> when I became the first time I, I became a free agent, um, Chicago came and signed me. But I mean, again, it was a farm club. Uh, I was in the, their farm club with Edmonton and in, in Nova Scotia. So when I got called up, I mean, I was in my 30s at the time. So, I mean, I knew I was there for a depth guy. But I mean, they gave me a title. I was their representative to um, uh, to Nova Scotia in the minors in 86. Don't forget, there was no Internet. There was no um, uh there was no social media as as we know it now. So Nova Scotia and Chicago was a long ways away. So if they wanted to get some some different answers than from phoning the the Nova Scotia Edmonton Oiler coach, they would phone me to get the to see if our players were playing, if our players were getting enough ice time, if our players were doing this. So anyway, I was having a pretty good year at the time, and they called me up and. Uh, uh, at, especially it was good. It was around Christmas time and uh, played seven games. And the one game I had uh, a six second shift and scored a goal. And, wow. uh, and like Bob Pulford, this is old school. Like if you were fourth line, a lot of times they did, and he didn't know me, they wouldn't play me. So, I mean, uh, I mean, 
I thought I played really good when I was up there. Matter of fact, when I got sent down, Pulley said, I know I should have played you more, but that's just the way I am and blah, blah, blah. So I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And uh, But what happened is we had a delayed penalty in St. Louis and um, uh, and nobody jumped on the ice. So I jumped on the ice, went right to the front of the net. Al Secord gave me a puck. I put it in. Then that was it. That was, he wouldn't put me on anymore. So, I mean, uh, that's the story of my hockey life right there. <laughs> Remember who the goalie was for St. Louis? No, I don't. I mean, I didn't. I can't remember the goalie. I just know Secord passed me the puck. Look, I can look that date up. By the way, you were on fire in Nova Scotia. You had thirty goals and thirty-six assists that year. You were a point-a-game player for Nova Scotia that year. Anyway. That was the lowest points I'd ever had. By the way, I mean, yeah, it was leading their that. team in scoring, but it was the lowest, oh, uh, no. lowest I'd ever had. So, I mean, I was frustrated with with my ability there because the next year i think i signed with springfield and got 120 points and and uh and kept getting 100 plus after that so by the way two years before nova scotia and chicago you were was that the baltimore skipjacks as in the worst team in the history of (laughs) no i wasn't i wasn't on that team we were on a team that was actually very very good. good okay and i played in europe that year and the league you were allowed to sign players coming back from the American league. There was no December 1st rule back then. So I signed with Pittsburgh uh, and they assigned me to Baltimore and uh, we ended up losing in the finals. And I think we had the best team. We set a, a, a American league record from the day I got there. We won 16 in a row. Wow. Um, but the uh, we were, we were playing against Sherbrooke in the finals and, Montreal's already been always been a thorn in my side, and they got this. They got two guys that just finished their junior career and came back for the second last round in the final, and that was Patrick Waugh and Stefan Riche. And uh, so, pretty good players. And and I think eight of those players or nine of those players moved up to Montreal the next year, and they won the Stanley Cup. So wow. I mean, uh, if you have to lose to the the other time I lost in the finals as a coach. Montreal did the same thing. They uh, brought up this guy, Carey Price, and he beat us in the finals. So, I mean, it, uh, uh, those Montreal goalies have been a thorn in my side from the beginning. And your coach in Baltimore, kind of a legend? Gene Ubriaco? I yeah. still, yeah, no, he was he was a legend, a, a great man. Really uh, enjoyed playing for him. He was uh, very tough, but, I mean, uh, uh, he was one of those old school tough guys, but he had a he was a good communicator. Yeah, and originally from the Sioux, and and kind of sowed his oats in the Toronto area, I believe. Yeah, as a, as, mm. a, as a younger guy. One last quickie at the end of your career, he you played for Fort Wayne Comets. Who was the famous broadcaster that was there for Bob Chase? Years? Bob Chase. He was there fifty two years. I mean, I was a big proponent. I didn't know why he wasn't in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, he had started with that franchise in the early 50s, 51, 52. I think by the time he was all done, like, a, um, unfortunately, he's, he's no longer with us. But, I mean, I think he did over 60 years of, of Comet hockey. And back in the day when AM radio was still big, he was 11, 1120 um, on WoWo. Yeah. And you could, it was one of those stations, for whatever reason, you could get it all over the country. Yep. And it and everybody got a chance to hear Bob Chase on the radio. 
Yeah, whoa, whoa, it bounced like WJR yeah. in Detroit. Same thing, you can pick it up anywhere. Pick it up on the bounce. Exactly. Am amplitude modulation. Uh, yeah, Bob Chase. Yeah, great point, though, Gabby. Just because he was a minor leaguer doesn't mean he shouldn't be in be awarded the Foster Hewitt for 60 years. I think there's, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, you know how hard it is to to go through the minors and have a voice that everybody knew, like Bob Chase. It was, uh, you know, there's so many people um, learned from him, yep. uh, including Doc Emmerich, was, uh, you know, was one of Bob Chase's biggest, uh, biggest fans. And uh, so, I mean, all of those things worked out pretty well. I was just going to bring that up. The doc credits him with a lot of it. So mm. uh, great stuff, Gabby. Um, I, I'll let you go. You got some football and some hockey to take care of. Uh, great job today. And always fun to go down uh, memory lane, as I mentioned, and hear a little bit about your, uh, your scoring, man. You were outrageous, by the way. Piled, piled it up. Yeah, I had a lot of them, but I mean, it, uh, I mean, it was, it was great for me in, in the minors. I mean, I mean, I had six 100 plus point seasons and uh, um, I mean, I, I would have loved it to have been in another league, but uh, you know, those things happen. I mean, some of us are meant to be uh, minor league players and there's been so many being in Hershey, so many great minor league players, you know, uh, in the day here. So, I mean, that when the six team NHL was around and these guys just couldn't quite cut the NHL, but were fabulous hockey players nonetheless. Um, how was your face-offs? I was, uh, with, yeah, I just don't like talking about myself, but I, I know um, in 86 and 87 when they first started doing them and we had our guy in Nova Scotia saying I was at 73%. Damn. I, was, I, I thought I was pretty good. I knew uh, I used to have some tremendous battles in junior with Doug Jarvis, who became one of the better face-off men. Yep. But I mean, it was and like in in the American League, um, we had some incredibly good face off. It was everything was a competition because there was almost no rules on the face off. You could kick and gouge and spear and everything else. And so, I mean, anything to win the face off was it was a big deal. Yeah. Dougie Jarvis, legendary face off, man. So if you're if you're getting after it with him, that's that's good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, Gabby, enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the hockey action this week. I will, and I'm uh, sure we will talk soon. You do the same with uh, your group down there, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon.